Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Um, yes, my name is Jeff, and um, if you're new to Calvary, welcome here. I have the privilege today of kicking off a brand new uh, sermon series on the book of Psalms. And hopefully, by the end of this sermon series, we will have a, a more profound sense of God's peace and presence amongst us, but also an enriched understanding of the unique contribution that biblical poetry makes to the other literary genres found inside the Bible, such as things like narrative or prose. And as it's the very first message in a brand new sermon series, I figured what better place to start at than the beginning in Psalm 1, which is where we're going to be today. So you can feel free to turn there in your Bibles now if you like. But before I go ahead and read the scriptures, why don't we just take a moment to pray together. So please uh, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for today. Thank you for everybody here um, and your great grace and your love for us. Thank you for your Bible and all of the treasures uh, and wonderful things found inside it. I don't think we could ever exhaust um, all of the learning and wisdom and knowledge and joys found inside Scripture. And so today we're just going to get a little bit more of that, and we're very excited, Jesus, to find out um, what's in this very special book of the Psalms. Uh, you gave it to us for a reason, and so we want to learn from it and be open to it and just receive from you what you have for us today. And, um, and we just offer up the service to you, and we pray that as we leave from this place that we would all be a little bit more like you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. So I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 1. So here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgments, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, as I was getting ready to speak this week, uh, my wife and I stumbled across an interesting uh, TikTok video and perhaps uh, you saw this one yourself. Uh, inside the video, uh, it's just people crossing a bridge. But the people who designed this uh, bridge or walkway had designed one section of it to not be glass, but instead to be a screen that looks like glass. And when you step on it, the screen displays the image of glass cracking. So as you can imagine, this gave some people a real fright because they thought that they were about to plummet to their untimely demise. Not fun. But it goes to show that when life is on the line, you can't really put a price on safety or stability. 
and people will do whatever it takes to ensure the safety of the people that they love as well as their own. Which is why the Psalms turn out to be such a valuable resource to us because they become a source of stability during the storms of life. And one of the things that we've got to appreciate about the book of Psalms is that it's a multifunctional book. Uh, God gave it to us to both comfort us from the trials of life, but also to equip us and instruct us as to how to do things. And the book of Psalms often can turn out to be slightly more challenging to read than we might have anticipated. The book is broken into five different sections, and King David is credited with being the author of approximately half of the 150 biblical um, poetry songs that are found within the book. And the Psalter as it is sometimes referred to as a whole, it also does a really great job at connecting with every human emotion that we experience during this lifetime. It laughs with us and cries with us, and it also cries out to God right alongside us, asking, where are you now, God? And it could be said that there is a psalm for every occasion that we will ever encounter. The book of Psalms becomes our friend as we seek to follow and know God in real life where things are messy more often than not and people have real doubts and real questions. So the Psalter therefore encourages people in their journey with Jesus because it reveals a God who is mighty and mysterious, as many people are aware, but it also reveals a God who is refreshingly down to earth, and he gets the daily affairs and struggles of the creatures that he created, and he cares about them and walks with us through the midst of it all. So one of the ways that I like to imagine the book of Psalms is as if it were an enormous palace or castle, and standing at the gates of this palace are two guards, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, preparing those about to immerse themselves in the halls of biblical poetry. Because ever since we left the Garden of Eden, we've been attempting to figure out how we can get back to the good life. How can we restore what we've lost? Because it's very, very difficult to shake the sense that things are not all as they should be. And companies, they certainly try to market the good life to us, saying that they can sell us what we're missing or sell us what we need. And it can often feel like the good life is just around the next corner. If I could just achieve this, or we could just do that, or maybe we just tried a little harder, if this could just happen, then everything would snap into place and things would be so much better. But Psalm 1 has a different approach on the good life. And if we haven't been able to secure it thus far through our traditional means, 
then perhaps the Bible's alternative approach may have something to offer us. And so that's what we're going to take a look at together this morning. So, going to verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. So what verses 1 and 2 do for us is they introduce us to two different ways of living, or two different paths. The way of the wicked and the way of those who delight themselves in God's law. And as we'll come to see, these two different paths end up leading to two very different destinations for those who persist in each path. One way said to lead to life, the other way said to lead to perishing. And if the stakes are really that high, life and death, then I would say that it's a little bit worthwhile to find out just what separates these two paths from one another and how we can tell them apart. Because it is then and only then that each and every one of us will be able to make very clear and intentional decisions about what our plans are going to be moving ahead. Interestingly, in verse 2 of our passage today, it also closely mirrors the scripture Joshua 1 verse 8, which reads, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And so notice the shared themes between Psalm 1 and Joshua 1. Themes like meditating on the law, the phrase day and night, obedience to God's ways, and persistent success are all themes mirrored in both passages. And what this tells us is that there is something tried and true about the approach that Psalm 1 is inviting us into because these were also God's instructions to Joshua heading into the promised land to confront the Canaanites, an enormous battle over a long period of time. So if there's any doubts in our minds as to the practicality or the functionality of meditating on God's law, or if it has any tangible effects on the battles that you and I face on a daily basis, we can reflect on the fact that it was God's number one strategy for Joshua going into the most significant conflict of his entire lifetime. And it was also by restyling or rephrasing what God had said that the serpent was able to trick Adam and Eve into making their fatal mistake. And so what Psalm 1 teaches us is that everything seems to hinge on whether or not a person will be willing to prioritize what God has said on a given subject, or whether or not they would prefer to take their advice from another source. 
instead of simply taking our cues from whatever source is the most popular, Psalm 1 says that the blessed person is the person who meditates on what God has said in his word. However, even if we resolve to put God first in all things, this is usually easier said than done. And I think we've all had some experience with that. We all know how difficult it can actually feel to truly put God first in all things, moment by moment, day by day. Highly, highly challenging, and always has been for all people in all history. So we're all in the same boat here together this morning. There are reasons people choose to follow the advice of people rather than the counsel of God. And there are reasons it can be hard to resist imitating those who refuse to depend on God when we are confronted with things like the loneliness that discipleship may bring. It's not always so easy to keep going if we feel like we're going alone. So why trust God? Why trust God if the path that he invites us into appears more difficult? Why not take an easier way with more people walking alongside you and less resistance? I mean, isn't that the logical decision? On paper, it kind of adds up. It makes sense, right? That's the whole reason we drive to hope instead of walking to hope, right? It's easier to drive. It makes more sense. And today it would make sense too, if comfort were our primary goal in life. But this morning I would like to suggest to you that there is something better than comfort to pursue in life. Namely Jesus, the source of eternal spiritual life for everyone. And that is why God invites us into the more difficult journey of trusting him because God is the only one who sees the entire picture. He can see both roads. He can see where both roads lead and he can also see how the journey on both roads will transform the people who persist in traveling them, including the people around them because God cares not only about who we are, but he cares about who we are becoming, who we are going to be in the future. Will you be more like Jesus tomorrow? And this process goes on for our entire lives. Which of course begs the question, how does delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord begin to affect us? What are the characteristics that begin to describe our lives? And verse 3 of our passage this morning tells us, it says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now from this verse, we can observe four separate effects that delighting in the law of the Lord has on a person. Firstly, 
Those who delight on God's word become as if they were a tree planted beside a stream of water, which is highly advantageous, as any realtor worth their salt will tell you. Location, location, location. It is all about location. There are many reasons why one house may be more valuable than another house. But one of the biggest factors that's incorporated in calculating the value of a property is considering, where is the place? Is it in the heart of the city? Or is it far, far away from everything that you want to be close to, like Walmart and Taco Bell? As we know, the properties in more desirable locations generally cost more than properties in less desirable spots. And if that's true of physical real estate, could it also be true of spiritual locations as well? Could some spiritual places be considered more desirable than others? And I'm happy to say that, yes, Jesus is that better spiritual place worth pursuing. And as we draw closer to him, we discover more and more that he was what we were looking for all along. And by meditating on God's word day and night, we become like that tree planted in close proximity to the source of life, which is the first outcome of meditating on God's law. Bringing us to the next. Bearing fruit in season, as the second half of verse 3 states, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. This is one of my favorite parts of this text because it invites the reader into a place of rest. We can rest here. Because one of the challenges that you and I must overcome is the belief that we are supposed to have achieved certain things by certain points in our lives. And these markers become the basis upon which we determine whether or not we can count ourselves as blessed or successful. I don't know what you dream of. Maybe you dream of home ownership or passing your faith on to the next generation successfully or perhaps a highly fashionable uh, circle of friends would do. But each of us knows what those markers of success are to us, what we, you know, kind of imagine as the successful life, because we tend to focus on those continually. Whatever we end up focusing on, we always kind of end up coming back to that thing. How well am I doing here? Have I achieved this? Is this progressing? And that kind of becomes the marker upon which we determine whether or not we are successful. And if these markers of success are missing from our lives, then we could be tempted to conclude that God has abandoned us, or else that we have simply failed. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you've ever felt 
like God is behind schedule in your life or in the world at large, that God has got some catching up to do. But verse 3 of our passage today reminds us that it is God who determines the seasons in which our lives bear visible fruit that we can see, including what types of good things are produced. And what this should do is free us up, right, to simply serve God and love him and love others in whatever season of life we find ourselves in, in whatever opportunities present themselves in front of us. It doesn't have to look a certain way. So even if it's different than we might naturally desire or how we might have originally anticipated, it's still good. And we've got to trust God that he is working in ways that we cannot imagine. Outcome number three. In addition, those who delight themselves on God's law also begin to demonstrate a healthy resilience to the trials of life. That when things are tough and the pressure is on, even though they may suffer, ultimately God's goodness is proven in their lives. As the verse says, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now you don't need me to tell you that in life, tough times come. Everybody knows that's true. So what's someone to do? If we know tough times are gonna come, but we're not really certain how, we're not really certain when, how can we prepare ourselves so that we are ready for anything when the test comes? And when it comes down to it, there is simply no substitute for a good set of roots. Roots, they sustain all plant life that depends on them for nutrition, and they also stabilize the surrounding area around them from hazards such as mudslides or landslides and those types of things. So they have a stabilizing effect. Most trees have to simply put down roots wherever they happen to find themselves, but you and I have an advantage that most trees could only ever dream of. That when it comes down to our roots, we are the ones who decide where our roots will be planted and how deep down our roots are going to go. Imagine that. Imagine having a realtor come to you and show you a listing of every property in the world saying, take your pick, you can live anywhere you want. They're all for you, for free. That would be incredible because as all of us know, there are some really amazing places to live out there, some mind-boggling places to live. But of course, we know that this is just a fantasy. Things like that would never happen because it's just too expensive to be real. But yet, that is exactly what has happened in terms of our spiritual real estate options. That because God loves us, he sent his son 
to die for us and pay for our sins, forgive us and give us new life for all of eternity. And because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, now we can decide to live anywhere we want spiritually. The options are all open no matter the cost, including the most desirable and advantageous spot of all directly beside the king himself. Directly beside Jesus. Incredibly, all of this hinges on our choice. It all hinges on our decision. If we decide to delight ourselves in God, we will find ourselves just like that tree, with our roots going directly down to the source of eternal life, where ultimately we'll be immune to heat and immune to wind because of the superior stability found inside Jesus Christ with us guaranteed to produce God's fruit on God's schedule. Not a bad deal, if I do say so myself. Now, I mentioned before that God loves us. And one of the big things that love does is it tells the truth. Which is why the Bible doesn't only list the advantages of intentionally rooting ourselves in God, but the Bible is also honest. And it's also transparent about the natural outcomes of choosing to put down our roots somewhere other than Jesus. In verse 4 of our passage today, the choice to rely on something other than God for spiritual life is illustrated with the imagery of chaff, which is the opposite of a tree planted beside a stream of water. Verse 4 reads, Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So if you're wondering what chaff is, it's basically the outer casing of a kernel of wheat. And at first it encompasses the wheat as the wheat is growing, but eventually that outer casing is forced to be shed. And when harvested, all the wheat and the chaff are mixed together, but they can't stay that way because you can't eat chaff, right? You can only eat wheat. So the farmer comes along, and to gather his wheat, he throws what he's gathered into the air. And that which has substance and is heavy falls back down into the basket. But the chaff is blown away by the slightest breeze. And thus the chaff and the wheat are separated. The tree planted beside streams of water remains stable and also provides stability for the area around itself, even when faced with immense difficulty, whereas chaff's instability is made visible at the first test. Thus, when we trust God, we are not only spared from unnecessary instability, but the lives of those around us also experience a stabilizing effect. I wonder if you can ever think of a time in the past that 
trusting God turned out for your good? Have there been any moments in your life that you can think back on and say, wow, God saved us that day? As it is said, it is good to recall the times when we can clearly remember God moving in the past because it assists us in trusting him in the middle of our current circumstances, whatever they may be. And in light of all this, it's easy to be thankful for the stability that meditating on God's word can bring. As verse 5 reveals to us, the substance of our lives will be tested. It reads, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Verses such as those can be difficult ones to come to terms with, as they communicate some level of judgment from God. And the question that may likely come to mind is, who is God or anyone to say that person A is righteous and person B is not? What gives anybody the right to make that distinction? If this God you talk about is so loving, why would he ever allow anyone to perish or be blown away? Wouldn't a loving God want everyone not only to survive, but also thrive and be happy? Why then does the Bible classify some individuals as wicked and allow them to be destroyed? Questions such as these have been enough to make some people leave faith behind. But it's my belief that when these ideas are better understood, they become much more manageable. When we wrestle with tough ideas, often it can be best to begin at the place where everybody agrees. And in this case, it's here. I think it's fair to say that most people will agree that evil exists. It doesn't matter what worldview you may or may not subscribe to. If you stop somebody on the street and say, hey, do you think evil is real? They're probably gonna say, yeah, evil is out there somewhere. Where people begin to disagree is about the exact nature of evil and where it can be found. Is everybody evil? Or are only some people evil? Is it up to humans to determine what is or isn't evil? What exactly is the true nature of evil or essence of evil? Where did it come from? And what could possible solutions be? These are all questions that we do not have time to answer today. But we, what we can know for certain is that evil is common. It exists. And if any doubt ever arises in our minds as to whether or not that is true, simply watching the news for a few minutes is usually enough to dispel any uncertainties. Usually when we come across a situation that affects us personally, or affects somebody that we perceive to be innocent or vulnerable, we are more than ready to call out for justice. And if we perceive that justice has been doled out appropriately, it is usually cause for celebration, or at least satisfaction that justice has been served, especially in the most atrocious cases. 
So my question to you this morning is this. If evil is so common and we love justice so much, why do we recoil at the idea of a good God who is both a judge and a merciful healer? The truth is, is that this type of scenario actually doesn't bother anybody except when we feel like God's conclusions are less than adequate and our own advice on any particular subject as more desirable. Here's the problem. As long as you and I are the ones ultimately deciding what is and isn't true, true justice will always remain a fantasy. Because if there's no such thing as absolute truth, a truth that stands on its own, whether or not anyone agrees with it or supports it, when push comes to shove, if I commit a crime and I want to avoid the negative consequences of my crime, all I have to do is say, I didn't do anything wrong. At that point, whomever I may have a conflict with will either have to take justice into their own hands or else, for better or worse, simply accept my interpretation of events. In turn, someone may simply suggest, we'll take the matter to the police, take the matter to the courts. Surely these bodies will be able to properly handle whatever wrongdoing wrongdoing has occurred. And someone may make that call. And the police and the courts may do their jobs. However, they will ultimately always be bound to make their decisions and base their actions on the laws that people put into place. Which leads us to the question, how can we know which laws are fundamentally more just or less just than one another? How do we know what's actually true? And the truth is, is that without some kind of wise, loving, all-knowing higher power, we could never have enough information to make those kinds of decisions well on a consistent basis. And aside from relying on God's truth, we are simply back to pitting person A's view against person B's view. May the strongest view win. Finding ourselves right back at the beginning of the cycle of injustice, where whoever has the most power decides what's true. Creating a scenario where consequences for wrongdoing could never hope to hold in a meaningful way. What all of this does is reveal a deep-seated need within every human heart. Firstly, for God himself, but also for his truth and his commandments. And demonstrates that without him, we begin to move towards an environment that is increasingly unstable. And God knows this. And because of his love, he invites us to meditate on his law, attempting to make his ways our ways and experiencing his grace while we learn more fully what all of this looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Notice that for the majority of Psalm 1, the text is comparing and contrasting the wicked and a person who is described as blessed, as opposed to someone described as righteous. And it isn't until the last two verses of our passage today that the term righteous is brought into use of the person who meditates on God's law. And this detail in the text reminds the reader that none of us are truly righteous, not thoroughly, not down to our absolute core, and that all of us will always in this lifetime be in need of God's grace, which can only be found in the gift of life that Jesus offers to us through faith in him and his death and resurrection. And we are sustained by God's grace until we make it to the end of our lives, until the world makes it to the end of history, where those who depended on God truly will be made actually righteous at their core. So at this time, I'd just uh, like to invite the worship team back to the stage. Um, but while we're still on this journey, the Bible offers us some comfort along the way. Verse 6 of our passage reminds us that God watches over the way of those who delight themselves in his law, providing guidance and stability to us and our communities as we move ahead with him. So my prayer is that we'll continue to meditate on God's truth and put our roots deep down into Jesus as a community because there is no telling what God may do. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, all my friends and family here. Thank you for your Bible and your truth um, and your word and your great grace to us. Uh, you love us so much and you are pleased with us. Even with all of our imperfections and the ways that we could grow, you look down at us and you're proud of us for taking steps and uh, obeying you and believing. Uh, it all brings such a huge smile to your face. And so as you celebrate over us, Jesus, I pray that we would just come to you uh, with open arms and open hearts, uh, eager for the next step of faith that you have for each and every one of us, but also the future of our church because we know that you are not done yet, Jesus, and we want to cooperate with you as you begin to heal our world. And we pray all of these things in your name.